0: There's lots of data showing uh, rising asthma rates and rising cancer rates and rising uh, illnesses. So it's it's a death sentence for those communities that are on the front line, breathing this stuff and and living with the pollution every day. You're talking about uh, unleashing madness.
1: Welcome to Got Science, the podcast from the Union of Concerned Scientists. I'm your fact-based host, Colleen MacDonald. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Robert Bullard, father of the environmental justice movement. And we'll get a sidelining science update from the intrepid Shreya Durvasula. Science. It can be a force for good, working to protect the environment and the health of all Americans, especially the most vulnerable among us. But it can also be misused. Over the last century, science and scientists have been implicated in racist practices and policies, from forced sterilizations and eugenics movements to citing industrial facilities that pollute in predominantly minority neighborhoods. If you care at all about the environment, And you should also care that scientific evidence has proven that people of color are burdened with a greater environmental harm in this country. The environmental justice, or EJ movement, began in the late 70s to unite the Green Movement with civil rights objectives and rectify some of these injustices. We're excited to have as our guest on this episode a scientist known as the father of the EJ movement, Dr. Robert Bullard. Dr. Bullard is the former dean of the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs at Texas Southern University. He's taught at five universities, won numerous awards for his work fighting environmental racism, and written 18 books on topics including urban land use, transportation, housing, and sustainable development. Dr. Bullard is currently working on an initiative led by historically black colleges and universities to address the health, equity, and environmental issues that affect vulnerable families in the Gulf Coast states. Our correspondent, Louis Castilla, got on the phone with Dr. Bullard to talk about his work on environmental justice, environmental injustices like Flint, and how scientists can contribute to addressing environmental racism.
2: It's a pleasure to have you here, Dr. Bullard. Could you talk about what environmental justice is for those in the audience who might not be too familiar with the concept?
0: Uh, Well, the environmental justice movement emerged out of the need for communities of color and low-income communities uh, given equal protection. And it centered around the question of fairness, equity, and justice, and particularly racial justice. We have environmental laws on the books, and oftentimes they are not uh, applied and uh, enforced equally across the board. And so what the environmental justice movement has been about for more than four or five decades is to make sure that... All communities are given equal protection, not about spreading, you know, the poison and spreading the pain equally, but making sure that no community becomes a sacrifice zone or no community is basically given things that other people don't want. Environmental justice movement also emerged around the issue of making sure that the good things and the, the things that make communities healthy and resilient and sustainable also flow to those communities that oftentimes get left behind or get forgotten. And so environmental justice is about human rights. It's about civil rights. It's about social justice. It's about health equity. Uh, It's about climate justice. And those things that that oftentimes get left off the table uh, because justice, fairness, and equity oftentimes will get left off.
2: Could you tell us what prompted you to spring into action all those years ago?
0: Well, you know, I was a a new sociology professor here in Houston at Texas Southern University, two years out of graduate school, and I was asked to collect data for a lawsuit that my wife had filed suing the state of Texas, uh, the city of Houston and Harris County, for proposing and planning a a sanitary landfill in a black middle-class suburban community. And the the idea of putting a landfill in the middle of a a middle-class community in the suburbs was unheard of. And the only factor that made it different is that this was a black middle-class suburban uh, community. Uh, My wife uh, filed a lawsuit, Bean versus Southwestern Waste Management, and sued the big company, and sued the the government. And she needed someone to collect data for that lawsuit. And I got drafted into the the process. And the, the fact that there was no database, there was no GIS mapping, there was no laptops and iPads to do all of the work. And so I had 10 students in my research methods class at Texas Southern, and we began to do this study. And I completed the study in 1979. And we found that five out of five of the city-owned landfills were located in Black neighborhoods. Six out of eight city-owned incinerators were in Black neighborhoods. And three out of four of the privately-owned landfill in the uh, city of Houston were located in black neighborhoods. And blacks only made up 25% of the population during that period of time. The, this was the first Bean v. Southwestern Waste Management Corporation, was the first uh, environmental discrimination lawsuit to be brought uh, using civil rights. And so it was something that I didn't plan to work on this. This is something that was dropped in my lap. It was given to me as something that I had to do. And from 1978 up until today, I've worked on issues expanding from garbage to the landfills to lead smelters to chemical plants to, uh, you name, uh, the issues of who has grocery stores and supermarkets and farmer's markets to who has clean energy and renewable energy to a whole lot of areas. But it all sprang from that uh, one study uh, in Houston, Texas in 1978 and 79.
2: You know, I can't help but think that what you just said, is very similar to what has been recently happening with the Keystone Pipeline. A lot of progress has been made, no doubt. But there is still a very long road ahead to get to a society where we have true environmental justice, right?
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, the environmental justice movement has always emphasized the fact that poor people and people of color oftentimes get more than their fair share of things that other people don't want. And even middle-income folks of color often get the worst of of the bad stuff. As I said before, in Houston, Texas, this was not a poor, uh, low-income, ghetto, poverty pocket. This was a black middle-class neighborhood of homeowners. Uh, And so when you look at the example of Keystone Pipeline and looking at the whole idea of where it would go and where where it emanates from, you're starting from Canada in First Nation and you ended up in communities of color here in in Texas. So it has brought a lot of people out uh, because in the past, The issue of environmental justice was considered just for poor, quote, minorities. But uh, with fracking and with these pipelines, it's bringing more people to become more aware that we need a strong environmental protection agency, not a weak one. We need strong enforcement and we need equal enforcement. That's what environmental justice uh, movement uh, has been preaching and has been organizing and mobilizing around. And I think the Keystone Pipeline really brought it home and got the attention of all kinds of people to this whole issue of justice.
2: There's an executive order on environmental justice. Could you talk about what it has accomplished and what are some of the dangers of rolling it back?
0: Well, you know, the Environmental Justice Executive Order 12898 that President Clinton signed in 1994 basically it was the best that we could get. Uh, it, it was an executive order. We could not get legislation passed in Congress to mandate that uh, environmental justice is codified in law. And so what the executive order does, it uses two pieces of legislation. It uses the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VI, that speak to the issue of non-discrimination in the use of dollars that flow from the federal government. In other words, no federal funds can be used to discriminate based on race, color, national origin. That's the civil rights component of the executive order. The other component deals with the environmental part, and that basically flows from a law that was passed in 1969, the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, that talks about environmental impacts of development or when uh, certain kinds of facilities are being built and the impact on the environment. And so using the Civil Rights Act of 64, Title VI, and NEPA, that's the best that we could get. And even with those pieces of legislation, we still have not had the executive order fully implemented over these many years. And the fact is that there are no codes. There are no federal mandates to get this action into the states. Because in most cases, the problem lies in states not acting in a way to equally enforce laws that relate to the environment and equal protection. Uh, a lot of the, the environmental uh, regulations have been delegated to the states, and all the 50 states are not created equal. There are some states that do a better job than others, but there are some states in EPA's uh, 10 regions that are horrible actors and have never seen environmental justice and equal protection and even civil rights as something that should be carried out with the vigor of enforcement that it demands. So we have spotty results when it comes to the things that the executive order has been able to achieve. And so over these many years, we've had some examples of moving forward. But again, we've had other examples of stagnation and in some cases, uh, pushback. Could you
2: talk a little bit about the potential impact that the new administration can have for environmental justice in the United States?
0: Well, I think the the whole idea that over the many years, uh, environmental justice has moved forward and made inroads, and we have to really understand a little history about environmental justice as it relates to federal government involvement. Environmental justice actually was initiated in the federal government level under the first Bush administration. That's when the Environmental Justice Office was created in 1992, And, and then when Clinton administration came in, they created the Office of Environmental Justice and beefed it up. Basically, uh, the executive order was signed and strategies were mandated from 13 federal agencies by way of the interagency working group. And uh, the George W. Bush administration, things kind of slowed down. And after the the Obama administration came in, the, the, the environmental justice issues picked back up. And so when you hear individuals that are being appointed Uh, to various administrative positions, whether it's uh, the uh, EPA or Department of Justice or the uh, Department of of Interior or Energy. When you talk about individual heading uh, departments that have a history of suing the EPA when it comes to enforcing the environmental uh, regulations, that does not bode well for communities that have history of having the burden, but also it has implications for the larger community because the wind uh, changes and water flows and the entire country uh, will will be impacted uh, when we talk about uh, loosening and in some cases uh, stripping uh, environmental protection and, and lowering standards when it comes to health and protection of the environment as we know it today. And so it's for many environmental justice and people who deal with health equity and who deal with civil rights and human rights. These are not uh, welcomed uh, kinds of changes, given the fact that even in friendly times, uh, our communities, low-income communities and communities of color, have still suffered the disproportionate burden and the worst of, of the conditions. And so when you unleash the dragon, so to speak, and saying that we're going to let laissez-faire and we're going to have polluters have the day, it means that those communities that oftentimes are on the front line I've got to get really bit um, hard.
1: We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. You're listening to Got Science, a podcast brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. Learn more at ucsusa.org/podcast. The Union of Concerned Scientists is following the Trump administration closely. Find out more at UCSUSA.org Trump.
2: Some people argue that regulations hamper growth and hurt the economy. In your opinion, how critical are regulations to protect the health and safety of our communities?
0: Well, all of this talk about regulations killing jobs, there's no data on that. But when we talk about loosening regulations and allowing industries to, to pollute at will, there's lots of data showing uh, rising asthma rates and rising cancer rates and rising uh, illnesses. So it's, it's a death sentence for those communities that are on the front line, breathing this stuff and, and living with the pollution every day. You're talking about uh, unleashing madness, and it makes no economic sense. It makes no sense when it comes to the health and safety of communities. And so the only rationale that you could say uh, sense that it makes is political expediency. And that's not the American way. Every community should have equal protection and every community should be valued and considered worth uh, having a quality and sustainable and nurturing environment.
2: You mentioned Flint. What have we learned from it?
0: There are lots of lessons to be learned from Flint, and I think the number one lesson is that when you take away a city and a community's democratic process, you open up a lot of cans of worms. When you start uh, getting bean counters in, in positions that are looking at saving dollars and not looking at the impact on communities in terms of their health, and livability, you're gonna have problems. So we have to have independent-minded individuals inside of agencies to look at the facts and make decisions in the best interest of communities because lead poisoning is irreversible. And so we're talking about uh, not something that can be fixed with dollars or a magic wand uh, easily, Uh, but the fact is that there are many Flint's around this country. And I guess the silver lining of Flint is that it made the rest of the country realize that we have some tremendous infrastructure problems and that it needs to be fixed. And so Flint is not the, the only case of old industrial city and where, where the infrastructure is crumbling and, and posing risk to, to health. And in this very rich country, that is an abomination. That is criminal.
2: I agree 100% with you on that one. Um, moving on to a different set of questions, what is the connection between environmental justice and science?
0: The environmental justice movement has always said that we need the best scientists looking at these issues, and we want to have the best minds to develop the research protocols that can not just look at one chemical at a time, but look at what happens in communities that are on the front line that are receiving all kinds of environmental stressors. You know, the chemical plant, the lead smelter the refinery, the garbage incinerator, the lead in the water, to look at the impact of all these combinations and look at uh, what happens in terms of the cumulative impact. And so science has made some advancements uh, because we've been pushing. But at the same time, when we look at communities that are overburdened, those saturated communities, those sacrifice zones, and we say, well, why can't we get regulations and why can't we get some rapid action and some targeted enforcement to get communities some relief. That's where the political science comes in. And we say oftentimes the political science should not trump the real science when it comes to people's health.
2: On that same note, why is environmental justice important for the science world?
0: Environmental justice is important for the science world because it takes a lot of the issues out of the laboratory and puts... It in the real world, and that's where the justice question comes in, and that's where the equity uh, question comes in, and that's where the issue around fairness comes in. The environmental justice movement it has been about leveling the playing field so that poor communities and communities uh, that are physically on the wrong side of the track can also speak for themselves and must be in the room when decisions are being made. Environmental justice brings all those pieces together to really hit home that this is about building uh, and growing a healthy and sustainable and livable nation. And, and I don't think we can be a sustainable nation if we keep having these disparities and keep discriminating and allowing certain types of operations to occur and, and pushing the nasty stuff and the dirty stuff on the, uh, one segment of our, of our society.
2: Can science help reduce inequity in our society?
0: Well, I think science can take the findings and and all of the research results that have come out showing disparities and showing inequality and work with policy decision makers and people who are doing the application, the practitioners, and push for change. It doesn't mean that scientists have to go out and become you know advocates on the ground, but their research can be very powerful when when placed in the hands of policy, makers and decision makers. And I think that, you know, we don't need, you know, all scientists to do this, but we do need uh, scientists who are inclined uh, to follow up and speak to application and the the idea of someone, you know, that could uh, develop the science and the research around the atomic bomb and nuclear weapons and and then see it applied in a way that destructive or, or applied in a way that that's harmful. I think science and scientists, uh, have an obligation to try to understand how that work can be used for good. And that, for us, is a very uh, powerful partnership as a way of uh, moving that agenda forward.
2: One last question. What are you optimistic about in this space?
0: Well, I just like you know, finish by saying that I am optimistic that the environmental justice movement and organizations that have zeroed in and focused on justice, fairness, and equity will stand tall and will not uh, relent. And this is a good time to really rally organizations and to talk about collaborations uh, across the board, whether it's dealing with health or dealing with energy or housing or transportation, food security. All of these issues now converge. And I think you know, the issue around climate change will bring more and more uh, people around to understand that climate justice has to be one of those top issues and that climate change is not just about CO2 or greenhouse gases. It has to be also about equity and justice in those communities that are feeling the hurt and the pain uh, already and, and who will get hit the hardest by uh, the negative impacts. These are the same communities that, that are going to be hit hardest by sea level rise and heat waves and the other kinds of negative impacts of global warming and climate change, and so we see opportunities, and I think that's how we build our long range strategy and not just talk about the next four years. And my thing is, we have to you know get to work and make sure that we train the next generation of environmental justice leaders and get them into positions that can allow them to lead. And as uh, elders, we have to step back and and let our young people soar and, uh, and own the issues of the day.
2: Thank you, Dr. Bullard. Back to you, Colleen.
1: It's time for Sidelining Science, the latest outlandish news from an administration that doesn't seem to care if our federal scientists can do their jobs, like preventing the spread of Zika, curing cancer, discovering new planets, predicting the weather. Here's Shreya Dharvasula with today's story.
3: The proposed federal budget from President Trump has drawn a lot of attention for its cuts to Meals on Wheels, Pell Grants, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I could go on, but I really don't want to. The Environmental Protection Agency faces a 31% cut to its budget, taking away money for cleaning up the Great Lakes and Superfund sites, climate change research, among others. Nestled within these cuts is a nasty little nugget. The budget eliminates the EPA's Office of Environmental Justice. This office was created in 1992 under the first President Bush to address the disparities in the application of environmental laws and regulations to communities of color and low-income communities. These disparities are real, And serious. Black children in the U.S. are twice as likely to have asthma induced by environmental pollutants as white children. Half of our Latino population lives in counties that don't meet EPA air quality standards. As you heard in the podcast, one typical example of environmental injustice is when polluting industries like oil extraction, chemical plants, or power plants build facilities in low-income neighborhoods. Why? Communities of color don't have enough political capital to fight back. The EPA's Office of Environmental Justice is intended to provide that capital. Legal experts, scientific experts, and civil rights advocates team up to help clarify regulations that will force industry to protect public health and keep people safe. Mustafa Ali, the office's longtime head, said as much in a recent interview when he answered the question, what does the movement lose? without a dedicated partner in the EPA. Ali responded, they lose that convener. In many instances, when a federal agency enters into a space, it will attract others to that conversation, allowing communities to get traction to be able to be a full partner in the process. They also lose some of the resources and technical assistance that are extremely critical to be able to address these issues. Ali recently resigned from the office citing a difference in priorities with the new administration. The environmental justice movement is underfunded as it is. Eliminating its federal partner isn't smart government spending. It's sidelining science.
1: Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science? A very special thanks to our guest, Dr. Robert Bullard. Our correspondents are Louis Castilla and Shreya Dervasila. Editing, engineering, and music is handled by the multi-talented Brian Middleton. Research and writing support by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald.